in this series today called Eat the Scroll. And uh, the big idea for this series is basically this, that if you're going to grow uh, and mature in your relationship with the Lord, if you're going to learn to stand on your own two feet, uh, then what we want to see in Scripture is just this, this reminder that you have to, we have to learn uh, to feed ourselves on God's Word. And I just want to say that I'm really excited. Man, it has been so fun to just hear a lot of great feedback from so many of you, uh, all of the enthusiasm and participation with uh, something like our 40-day reading challenge through this series. I mean, I've heard so many stories from people who are, who are reading along with us, maybe for the first time, maybe for the first time in a long time. Uh, many of you that are soaping your way uh, through Scripture with us. And if you don't know what that means, check out some of the previous messages from this series and, uh, or ask the person that invited you today. They'll give you a little bit of understanding of what we mean by what, when we say uh, soaping our way through Scripture. I, uh, just as one note, I saw on Instagram uh, uh, a young couple that used to attend Genesis. They now live in Germany. And it was just, hey, they were just saying, hey, we're doing the 40-day challenge too uh, with Genesis, uh, even from Germany. Uh, but not just adults, students that are following along, kids that are following along with us. Uh, it is just so good and uh, so exciting to see. And today, uh, I want to do something a little different with you. And uh, what I want to do is I want to take this time this morning and talk to you about how the Bible and the New Testament in particular, uh, how it's put together. And I want to tell you right up front that if you're new with us today, uh, this probably isn't a typical message uh, that you would hear at, at Genesis. Uh, if you've been around Genesis for a while, you may notice that, hey, that, this is going to feel maybe a little more like a lesson or, or even a seminar today, just something different than, than one of our typical messages. And I tell you that up front so that when you walk away today and say, yeah, it was kind of a different message, well, at least you can't say that I didn't tell you uh, before we got started uh, here, here today. And so, but what I want to do is I want to try and provide a framework for you uh, of how the Bible is really put together, sort of a, a big picture uh, of how we can see it and maybe how that will help us in our understanding of Scripture. And let me add uh, that what I share with you today, there are people that spend semesters uh, studying things like this in seminary and Bible college. What I've done is I've done my best to try and get it down to about 30 probably more like 35 minutes, all right? And we're going to push hard today. I mean, it's going to be kind of like a fire hose experience, uh, so bear with me. But uh, there are a couple of resources that have been really helpful to me uh, in preparing for today. Uh, one of those is a lesson given by a guy by the name of Chip Ingram. Uh, he's a pastor out in California. And so what we've done is we've prepared a modified outline. I hope you got one of these when you came in today because you'll find this to be very useful, uh, very helpful. But we've taken an outline of his and kind of mapped modified it for our own purposes. Uh, and so if you didn't get one of these, you can slip back to the back and get one now, or at least pick one up on the way out today. But all said, here's the point. I hope by explaining some of the big picture of the Bible this morning, that you're going to grow even more uh, in your desire to know God's word. And maybe for you, I mean, if you didn't grow up around the Bible, if you didn't grow up around church, uh, maybe a lot of what I share with you today will be brand new, uh, but I hope very helpful uh, to you. For others of you, maybe this will be review uh, of some things that you've already learned and discovered. But let's begin uh, with some basics about this unique book that we as Christians, as a church, call the Bible. And then what I'll do is I'll shift gears, and again, we're gonna spend the majority of our time talking about the New Testament. But first... The Bible is unique. 
And it's unique for a number of different reasons, but it's unique in that it claims to be the Word of God. And there's no hiding it uh, when I say something like that. I mean, all through the Bible, uh, you'll discover from yourself, for yourself, from beginning to end, you'll read things like, the Word of the Lord came to me, or this is what the Word of the Lord says, or all Scripture is God-breathed. And, and that just reinforces this point that these words that, that we've been reading together, they weren't made up uh, by any one person. I mean, we believe as Christians and as a church that they are God's Word for us. I mean, it's something we hold uh, very highly. Um, the Bible is unique also in that it's a library uh, of 66 books uh, written by 40 different authors over a period of 1,500 years. And that's 39 books in the Old Testament and 27 books in the New Testament. And you've probably noticed how your Bible is divided into two sections. I mean, we all know that there's an Old Testament and there's a New Testament. And, and what the Old Testament and New Testament do is they reveal two different wills or two different agreements that God made with his people. Uh, the first will or the Old Testament was dependent on works and what you and I must do in order to earn salvation. Well, the second or the New Testament was dependent on grace and what Jesus did for us so that we could receive uh, salvation. Uh, you could say that the Old Testament is very foundational, uh, but the New Testament is looking to uh, build on that foundation. Uh, the Old Testament provides the history of a people as you read through it from beginning to end. The New Testament focuses more on a person, uh, the person of Jesus. Uh, and finally, you know, the Old Testament shows really more of the wrath of God towards sin, whereas the New Testament shows more of the grace of God towards sinners. Uh, it's also unique in its transforming power. Uh, like in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, when we read, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. You see, there, there's just something about the word of God that brings life to us. Man, I mean, how many of you have experienced that for yourself? I mean, Stuart was sharing about his own experience uh, just a few moments ago. If you've been reading with us through this 40-day challenge, you probably got a, a, at least one day. You've got some days that you would look back to and say, you know what, man, that day it just really clicked. There was something about those words that really got uh, into me. Now, I want to spend the rest of the time uh, focusing on the New Testament. And I want to just say this too, that I'm not jumping over the Old Testament because I think it's any less important. All right. So please don't send me an email. All right. Or if you're going to send it to Ben, all right, send four of those uh, emails on to Ben and uh, we'll, we'll come back to the Old Testament another time, but, but let's look at the New Testament together. And here are some general notes uh, about the 27 books that make up our New Testament. Uh, first of all, uh, the New Testament as a whole was written between uh, 50 and 95 AD. AD. And actually, and I found this really interesting, probably the first book of the New Testament uh, written was the book of 1 Thessalonians, uh, written by the Apostle Paul around 51 AD, and the last book being the book of Revelation, uh, written by John in 95 AD. Now, in the same way that we speak of the Bible as a whole being the inspired Word of God, again, we reinforce this idea that the New Testament uh, claims to be the inspired Word of God, and Jesus provides evidence uh, for this in John chapter 16, verse 13, when Jesus said, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Who's going to do that work? 
Jesus says the Holy Spirit is gonna guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. And let's just, I just say this because let's keep this in mind as we consider the men who wrote down the words that make up the inspired word of God. I mean, one of the many reasons why Jesus sent the, the gift of the Spirit to us was to guide these men as they wrote and recorded and remembered this truth. And it's why the Apostle Paul was able to say in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking, correcting and training uh, in righteousness. Now, how was the New Testament put together? Maybe you've asked a question like that before. Uh, respected church leaders compiled uh, the works that make up our New Testament back in the fourth century AD. And I found this interesting. They used three criteria, at least three criteria, to determine what books were going to be included in the New Testament. First was that any book that was going to be included in the New Testament was to be written by an apostle or at least a close associate to an apostle. For example, uh, we know the gospel writers, John and Matthew, these were both, they were both apostles of Jesus. Mark wasn't, but he was a close associate of Peter. Uh, Luke was a close associate to Paul. Secondly, for a book to be included, it was to be widely recognized by the early church as authoritative. And then finally, it was to be doctrinally consistent, just basically meaning it couldn't contradict anything that had already been widely accepted by the church up to this point. And while the original Old Testament was written in the Hebrew language, uh, the New Testament was written in Koine Greek, which was a widely understood kind of universal language, much like English uh, at this particular time in history. And also to the question, well, then can we trust the New Testament to be accurate? Uh, one example of this, Josh McDowell, who's written a great book uh, called The Evidence for Christianity. He provides one example uh, for defense of this accuracy. He says this, and I quote, he says, we have close to, if not more than 25,000 manuscript copies of portions of the New Testament in existence today. He writes, no other document of antiquity even begins to approach such numbers and attestation. In comparison, Homer's Iliad is second with only 643 manuscripts that still survive. And I, I found this fascinating too. Earliest copies of New Testament letters go all the way back to the second century, date back to the second century AD. The earliest copy of Homer's work by comparison only dates back to the 13th century. Here, here's why I share all this with you as we get started. I, I just want you to see that we have a gift as followers of Christ. Uh, we have a gift that not only did God send his son, Jesus, to die for us, but he has given us a gift in his word. And that word has been preserved over the years for all of us, for each of us. And we don't have to figure this out on our own as we go. Uh, we can develop this habit and discipline of turning to God's word for guidance and direction. Now, more to your handout, if you've got that and you want to have that ready. Uh, how is the New Testament laid out? I mean, how do you begin to make sense of 27 books that make up our New Testament? Well, I think it would be helpful for you to see that the New Testament is laid out in four eras, all right? Four different eras. There's the gospel era, uh, there's the church era, there's the mission era, and then finally, the future. And I want to walk through each of these, a few minutes in each of them, uh, with our time here together today. The first is the gospel era. And I want you to see right off the start that the main figure in the gospel era is Jesus. And uh, when we say gospels uh, here in church, we're talking about the first four books of the New Testament. Uh, that's the books Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the word gospel just simply means good news. 
Uh, it comes from the Greek word euangelion, which means good news for us. Uh, it's the good news of Jesus Christ from four different witnesses. And the basic, the primary message of the gospel era is that Jesus, uh, the Son of God, came as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies concerning a Savior and that he offers salvation to all people. That's the good news. That's the good news for us. Now, the, the first book in the Gospels is the book of Matthew. And again, as I mentioned a moment ago, Matthew was an apostle of Jesus. And Matthew had a primary audience as he was writing his account uh, of Jesus' life. He was writing specifically for the Jewish people. All right, he had the Jewish people in mind. And again, his basic message was the same of that as the Gospel era. And that is that Jesus is the Messiah who fulfills Old Testament prophecy and expectations for us. I mean, remember, here's why this is important. For the Jews, they were looking for a Messiah. The Jewish people were waiting on this Messiah. They were waiting and expecting a powerful political leader who would come and claim the throne of David and overthrow Rome from power once and for all. And so the, the apostle Matthew is going to describe Jesus as a spiritual Messiah, more interested in overthrowing things like sin in our lives and Matthew's going to have his work cut out for him as he's trying to convince his listeners to rethink their expectations, their picture of a Messiah. And one of the ways that he does this is by describing how Jesus comes as a fulfillment to Old Testament prophecies. That's why if you open your Bible to Matthew chapter 1, uh, one of the first pages of the New Testament, you're going to see uh, that Matthew begins with a genealogy, all right? And genealogy, these genealogies were, were very important to the Jewish people. And so Matthew's going to show how Jesus comes from the very same family line as their hero, Abraham. And add to that, from beginning to end of the book of Matthew, over and over, Matthew's going to quote from different Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah. Just a couple of examples of those. Like in Matthew chapter 2, uh, verses 22 to 23, Matthew was uh, recounting uh, Joseph, uh, Jesus' father, moving the family back from Egypt. They had escaped Egypt after Jesus' birth to get away from uh, the, the evil King Herod and the atrocities that were taking place around Jerusalem. And so as they're coming Coming back, Matthew records it in this way. In verse 22, it says, But when he heard, that's Joseph, uh, the father of Jesus, that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, says he was afraid to go there, Matthew writes. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. And then look what Matthew records this. So was fulfilled. What was said through the prophets that he, that Jesus, would be called the Nazarene. And uh, later on in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, again, Jesus just kind of reinforces this fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies when he, he, he teaches and says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then I think kind of the key verse for this whole gospel over in Matthew 21, uh, verses 4 and 5, as Matthew describes that first Palm Sunday. Uh, we'll celebrate that together in a couple of weeks. Matthew records, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Who was that prophet? It was Zechariah. Uh, we read about him in the Old Testament. Here's what Zechariah had prophesied. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Again, I think that's a key verse here in the Gospel of Matthew. And if there's a, a key word that kind of sums up Matthew, it's that word fulfilled. Uh, Matthew is effortless in his attempts to convince the Jewish people that Jesus is the Messiah, the pro God's promised one. 
Uh, the second book in our New Testament is the book of Mark. Now, Mark was a close associate and interpreter for Peter, and many believe that Mark, also known as John Mark, uh, followed Peter around and wrote down he heard everything, everything that he heard Peter teach uh, and preach about Jesus. Now, Mark's gospel is one of the shortest yet most vivid accounts of Jesus' life. Many, many people believe that his gospel also serves as a primary source for Matthew and Luke, that Matthew and Luke look to Mark uh, in order to verify uh, their evidence for, for Jesus. Uh, now, who was the primary audience for, for Mark? Well, uh, for Matthew, it was the Jews. For Mark, it was the Romans. And uh, the basic message uh, of the book of Mark is that Jesus is the authoritative son of God. That just means that uh, the Romans were all about power. Uh, they were all about strength and conquest. They believed that Caesar was all powerful, that he was the son of God. And so Mark's going to push up against that belief system, and he's going to point to Jesus over and over again as the son of God. But the son of God that he portrays is much different. Uh, if there's a key verse in Mark, I think it's Mark 10, verse 45, when Jesus said of himself, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, if there's a key word in Mark, it's the word immediately because Mark is a gospel of action. Uh, it just flows from one episode to another, recounting uh, Jesus' life. Next is the book of Mark, or excuse me, Luke. Uh, the primary audience for Luke were the, were the Greeks, uh, or the Gentiles, the message in Luke, the basic message is that Jesus is the perfect son of man who came to save and to minister to all people, that he was fully dependent on God. Uh, he was fully dependent on prayer and on the Holy Spirit. Now, here's what makes Luke unique. Luke was a physician and a close associate of the Apostle Paul. And uh, he's also given credit for writing the book of Acts, which we'll touch on in just a moment. And Luke's reputation was one of careful study. All right, and for writing an orderly account. I mean, he was very specifically and intentionally looking for evidence to point to Jesus as this son of man. And so this would have been very important to a highly educated Greek reader. Uh, if there's a key verse in Luke, it's Luke 19.10. Again, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. His, his gospel is often referred to as the missionary gospel. Again, where Jesus is portrayed not just simply as a savior to the Jews, but also as a savior to the whole world. And a key word or key phrase there in Luke is the son of man. And if you remember back to this past fall, we did a series here at Genesis called The Son of Man, which just kind of highlighted the fact that Jesus came for us as, a, as fully of God, as, son, as the son of God, but he also became fully man for us uh, at the very same time. And then finally, there's the gospel of John. And uh, John's gospel could be called the supplemental gospel. And uh, he wrote his gospel as much as 30 years after Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote theirs around 85 AD. And some people believe that John wrote his account uh, in response to this growing belief that Jesus was a good man, uh, but not necessarily uh, the son of God. And so as you read John, you'll find that he emphasizes the deity of Jesus over and over again. It's why he opened Opens in chapter 1 in John 1, describing Jesus as the Word who has always been and will always be God. Uh, if there's a primary audience in John, it's all people. And his message, again, over and over again, is that Jesus is the fully divine Son of God. Uh, if I had to point to a key verse, again, there could be a number of them, but I'd point to John 20, 31, uh, when John himself records these words and says, but these are written... All right, these words that I've have recounted for you, they were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Uh, that key word for John is the word believe. It's that challenge to believe. And 
Man, you know, another important verse there that you're probably all familiar with or you've heard before, John 3, 16, when John says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And I've just stopped there for a second and say, I hope you know the power of that truth uh, for your life, uh, the good news of Jesus Christ and why he came and why he wants to know you and why he would love to forgive you of your sins and redeem your life. Uh, that's an important message for all of us here at Genesis. It's an important part of who we are as a church, what we hope to accomplish every week and with our lives and everything that we do uh, is that you would believe and live for Jesus, that you'd be in relationship with him and really see how he changes lives. And so that's the Gospels, all right? Let's move on to the book of Acts. Now, Acts is a history book. As you read it, it is full of history. And Acts introduces a second era that we'll call the church era. And uh, the church era, the, the apostle Peter is the prominent figure in the church era, but Jesus is still the point. And you need to know that from the very beginning of your Bible to the very end, Jesus is the main character. He is the central figure. And the big idea with the church era is that God is going to use Peter and others to establish his church on the earth. And so the church era begins in Acts chapter 1 uh, and runs through Acts chapter 12. And again, uh, this was recounted. These were written down uh, by Luke. And so Acts 1 opens with the ascension of Jesus uh, into heaven. Uh, Acts 2 marks the day of Pentecost. Now, this is the day when the Holy Spirit came down on the disciples and all of the believers. And as you read Acts chapter through, midway through it, there's this crowd that's going to come together around Peter and others. And so Peter's going to step up and he's going to preach about how Jesus was sent by God as the Messiah, that he was crucified, uh, but that God raised him from the dead. Now, uh, as Acts 2 records, as Luke records, when those in the crowd recognized and realized who it was that they had crucified, he said it very specifically that they were cut to the heart. And so their response to Peter was, what in the world should we do? What have we done? What should we do? And Peter's response was repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, Luke's going to continue and uh, describing Acts chapter 3. In Acts chapter 3, there's the account of Peter and John healing the beggar. And when the Jewish authorities hear about it, uh, when they begin witnessing all of this commotion from this early church, uh, they're going to arrest these men and others at times, and they're going to they're challenge them. They're going to command them to keep silent, but they're not going to stop talking about Jesus. And they're gonna not, they're, they won't quit living this out. And so they're going to endure imprisonment and they're going to endure torture for the sake of good news about Jesus. Uh, as you continue along in Acts, Acts chapter 6 uh, describes how the church was growing and how God's going to use the church to confront some real issues in the world and with things like hunger and poverty. And uh, we're going to be a part of that too uh, in many different ways here with Genesis. Acts 7 is when Stephen is stoned to death uh, for his faith in God. And Stephen's going to become one of the first of many martyrs in the church. And as a result of his death uh, and threats against the church, many of these Christians are going to flee Jerusalem. They're going to go running uh, for their lives. Uh, but do you know what they're going to do as they leave Jerusalem and as they move off to these other regions and far off cities? They're going to take the good news of Jesus with them. And they're going to go and they're going to move alongside of others and they're going to meet new people and they're going to lead others to Christ as they go. And I just think that's a great reminder for us that even in the difficult times of life, there are always opportunities to keep pointing to Jesus and to keep glorifying the Lord no matter what it is uh, that you're going through. 
Uh, Acts 8 through 12 describes a time of transition. Uh, Over the course of these five chapters, you can see for yourself how God's going to expand the focus from the message going to just the Jewish people, uh, but how it's going to extend now to the Gentiles as well. I mean, read Acts 10 uh, for yourself sometime today. See how God commands Peter to go to the home of Cornelius. Uh, Now, here's why that was significant. Peter was a Jew. Uh, Cornelius was a Gentile, and Jews and Gentiles didn't get together to watch the Super Bowl, all right? They they didn't share meals, all right? They They didn't hang out in each other's homes. But by doing this, God was preparing Peter and others to take the gospel away from Jerusalem and, again, away from just the Jewish people and to all people. And then Acts chapter 13 marks the transition to what we call the mission era, Uh, Acts 13, all the way through the book of Acts to the very last chapter 28, and then all of the epistles leading up to Revelation make up the mission era of the church. And whereas Peter is the main figure in the church era, Paul, the apostle Paul, is the main figure, the prominent figure in the mission era. And and this era, again, can be described as one of great expansion uh, because God, through Paul, is going to extend the gospel now uh, and the church from beyond beyond just simply Jerusalem and even Judea and Samaria, but into the Roman Empire or the rest of the world. And Acts 13 to 28, I think just one of the best ways to break this up for you uh, is comprised around three missionary trips that Paul and others took. And, And these were missionary trips with teams, again, led by Paul, but included others as well. And what they're gonna do is they're gonna go out to these different parts of the known world at the time and and disciple others and start new churches. Uh, Like in Acts chapter 13 and 14, where you can read about the first missionary trip that Paul and others took. It was to this region called Galatia. It was a trip that lasted two years. Now, our mission trips to places like Haiti last about a week, all right? So these are two-year trips. They require a little bit more of a commitment. Uh, But after completing these trips, uh, Paul and his team returned to their sending church Uh, in a place called Antioch. Now, Acts 15 uh, is the beginning point of a second missionary trip that Paul took uh, to Greece. Now, this was a trip that lasted three years. And this is where Paul hears the call uh, to go into Macedonia, which marks the expansion of the gospel from just uh, Asia and now into Europe as well. And once Paul is finished, again, he and his team, they're gonna return once again to this sending church of Antioch. Now, Acts chapter 18 is the start of a third missionary trip that Paul takes. This is into Asia, farther into Asia. This trip is going to last four years. And by the time they get to this third missionary trip, things are really starting to take off. The message is exploding. uh, But at the same time, there is this growing and this intense hatred for people like Paul and others as well. And so at the very end of this trip, Paul's not going to return to Antioch, but instead he's going to return to a place where he's hated the most. By Acts 21, Paul and his team are going to make their way, or Paul himself is going to make his way back to Jerusalem. And when he gets there, there's a mob that's going to seize him. He almost dies, but instead Roman guards are going to grab him and arrest him. He's going to stand trial before people like the Sanhedrin and then Felix and Festus and Agrippa. And by Acts 27, Paul's going to be on his boat, on his way to Rome, where he will be imprisoned there and eventually stand trial before Caesar. But get this, it's from Rome where Paul is going to write his epistles. All right, now when we say the word epistle, that's just another way of saying letter. And these are letters that Paul wrote to groups of people in churches that he met during these missionary trips. And with these letters, Paul's going to encourage them 
And he's going to instruct them. And he's going to challenge them to keep going and to keep growing. And he's going to challenge them on how to love God and how to love others and to live out their faith in Christ. And of the 21 epistles in the New Testament, you could break them up into three groups. Nine of them could be called Paul's epistles. Four of them we'll call pastoral epistles, and then the remaining eight will be called the general epistles. And again, these are on your sheet, uh, but if I just kind of move through these very quickly, there's the book of Romans. Now, when we say the book of Romans or the letter to the Romans, Paul is writing to the Christians that are living around Rome. That's his central audience at the time. The basic message of Romans is that salvation doesn't come by good works but through faith in Jesus Christ. There's First and Second Corinthians. Again, Paul is writing to the Christians at the church in Corinth. And Paul's gonna use these two letters to address problems and divisions that have come up in the church and how to address these. Uh, Galatians is a letter to the church in Galatia. It's a message about grace and how we're freed from the Old Testament law. Ephesians uh, helps us better understand our identity in Christ. Uh, the first half of Ephesians is all about what God has done for us. The second half of Ephesians is now how we ought to live because of what God has done for us in Jesus. Philippians is a book about joy and about how your relationship with Christ can help you get through anything in your life. Colossians addresses the supremacy of Christ. First and second Thessalonians were written to get us ready for the return of Jesus because he's coming again. And so we'll call those Paul's epistles. The next four are called the pastoral epistles, but they're written by Paul too. There's first and second Timothy where Paul gives instruction to pastors on how to organize and to care for their church. It's a book of encouragement. Uh, Titus is more of the same. Philemon is a book about forgiveness and reconciliation. And then finally, there are the eight general epistles. And while many people believe that Paul may have written the book of Hebrews, he's not credited for writing these remaining epistles. And so there's Hebrews, which is a letter to the Jews. And this is a letter that speaks about how Jesus is greater than Moses and why we don't have to sacrifice animals anymore because Jesus was the final and the ultimate sacrifice for us. Uh, James was written by the brother of Jesus. Uh, James, the half-brother of Jesus, James is sometimes called the Proverbs of the New Testament. Uh, it's wisdom for practical living. First and second Peter, uh, the apostle Peter writes about suffering and how we as Christians, we are God's chosen people uh, in this world. And then first, second, and third John, again, written by the apostle John, he talks about the importance of unity and the assurance you can have in your salvation. And then Jude, uh, like James, also a brother of Jesus, many many believe. And the message of his letter is to just be on the lookout, to watch out for false teachers in your life, uh, to be careful of how, who you let to let influence you. And what are those things that you allow uh, to kind of dictate how you live your life? Again, just a reminder to keep looking to the word of God, keep looking to the word of God. Um, I, I know this is a lot. I, I, I hope this helps you in some way. I, I really, again, just in providing this framework, I hope it helps you make greater sense of the New Testament, the gospel era, the church era, the mission era. And then finally, lastly, in about three minutes, uh, the future era uh, or the book of Revelation. And uh, once again, the prominent figure here is Jesus. And the theme of Revelation is all about the prophecy of end time events and what is still to come, what's in the future before us. Now, Revelation was written by the apostle John uh, after receiving a vision from God while he was an, an old man on the island of Patmos around 95 AD. And if you don't know this or realize this, you may at some point, Revelation is a mysterious book. Uh, it just is, and it's full of symbolism, and it can be really difficult to interpret. And as a result, there are a number of well-meaning interpretations, even of the book of Revelation, amongst well-respected Christians and churches. But 
over it all, the message of revelation is just simply this, that Jesus, the, the Lord of history, he is going to return to the earth one day. And when he comes, he will destroy all evil in opposition to him, and he will bring the kingdom of God to its glorious culmination. And if I were to divide the book of Revelation for you uh, today, Revelation 1 to 3 describes seven churches uh, that I believe kind of represent churches from the time of Christ until the end of time. But in Revelation 4, the scene changes. And many people believe Revelation 4, 1 is the rapture uh, of the church. This is the moment where those who have put their trust in Christ will be removed from this world. And then if that is the case, then chapters 4 through 18 describe the period known as the Great Tribulation. And uh, according to John, according to Revelation, this will be a seven-year, a horrible seven-year period where evil and Satan will have great uh, influence and presence here on the earth. But then chapter 19. And chapter 19 describes the triumphant return of Jesus Christ. And it's the day when, as John describes, Jesus returns to the earth on a white horse as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And whereas the first time Jesus came to the earth in a manger and very few people noticed, on this day, when he returns again, no one's going to miss it. Everyone will see his return and there'll be no doubt about who he really is. See, by the time you hit Revelation 21, uh, John is going to then start describing a new heaven and a new earth. And let me just pick up here before we close. Revelation 21, uh, starting in verse 1, John describes that moment like this. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. He says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. He says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God and he will wipe away every tears from their eyes and there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away because he who was seated on his throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said to John, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And man, doesn't that just get to the heart of what we want to see and believe about the word of God is that these words for us are trustworthy and they are true. And they are trustworthy and true for you right now if you're a student, if you're heading off to college this fall. If you're in middle school or high school right now, even his words are trustworthy and true of you if you're going through a really difficult time in your life or going through one of the greatest seasons you've ever lived. Now, just a few closing thoughts real quick. Why why does this matter for us? Hey, this is just a reminder that this book, The Word of God, is the story of our God and his intense love for people like you and me. Uh, His desire is to, to have a relationship with you. And the word of God from beginning and end just describes in so many different ways this intense desire to have this relationship. And the greatest expression of that love for us is found in his son, Jesus. Jesus is the promised one. He is the promised one of the New Old Testament, the Savior we learn about in the New Testament. God gave his son who gave his life for you and for me. Secondly, what I see is that our God has always had a plan. 
Uh, he is the Lord of all. From the, from the book of Genesis all the way to Revelation, he's always been in control. See, Jesus was no plan B. All right, he's, he's no second plan for us. He has always been the plan for our world and for you and me. And then finally, what I take away is this reminder that Jesus is going to return. He's coming back. And uh, John describes that again in Revelation 22, verse 20, uh, where he writes, he records, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. And John's reply, amen. Come, Lord Jesus Friends, here's why this matters for us today. When Jesus returns or when you die, whichever comes first, on that day, you don't get to make up your mind what you intend to do with Jesus. You don't get to wait till that moment because on that day when he returns, those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ, uh, he's going to send them to his right and they're going to spend eternity with God in heaven. But for those who rejected Christ in this life, they will, as C.S. Lewis describes, They will be given what they have always wanted, that even on that very day of judgment, God will once again show his love by giving those who rejected Christ everything they've always wanted, and that's eternal separation from God. And as Christians, we know that's eternal separation from God in hell. And here's here's why that's important for us, I think, today as Christians. Uh, Here's what this means for you. Knowing that Jesus is coming back should give you courage, should give you faith, and should give you hope that no matter what happens, no matter what's going on in your life today, you're going to spend eternity with God in heaven. But it's also a reminder to us as Christians and as a church that our mission is great and our mission is urgent. And that's why we've got to remain focused on leading people to Christ. It's why we've got to be all about making disciples who can make disciples. It's why we've got to stay focused on things like uh, generosity, working with partners who are also spreading the good news of Jesus and making disciples. It's why we've got to stay focused on things like church planting and why our mission has and always will be helping people find their way back to God. We know and we're reminded that Jesus is coming again. And what does it mean for you today? If you're not a Christian, if you don't have a relationship with God today through Jesus Christ, you got to make up your mind what you intend to do with Jesus. And my challenge to you today is why, why would you keep putting that off? Why would you delay any longer? Our Savior gave us life for you, and he'll forgive you of your sins, and he can give you a new life. He is enough, as we sang just a little while ago, and you can surrender your life to him today. Let's pray together. And uh, as we pray, I I guess I just want to challenge you with that. And do you know what you intend to do with Jesus? And for many of you here today, I know that you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And so maybe today is a day of renewed hope. Maybe today is a day of recommitment to him. But for others of you, maybe you've never put your trust in the Lord. And why would you delay any longer? He loves you. I believe that he has you here today for a reason. And he's been working in your life and even in the garbage He just wants to get your attention. And maybe today's the day where he gets your attention once and for all. If you're ready to surrender your life to Jesus today, just just pray that in your own life right now. Uh, you You can even pray these words. Lord Jesus, I surrender my life to you today. I'm giving you my all. I want your love and your forgiveness for me today. 
And uh, man, if you're, if you're praying that prayer today, what we celebrate with you, we would love to help you uh, in these next steps. I mean, there is no greater decision you can make but to trust Jesus Christ. And so if that's a choice that you're making today, if you've got questions about that, I hope that you'll meet one of us up front afterwards. If somebody brought you along today, maybe it's just a conversation that you have with them about, hey, here's what, here's what I think God's doing in my life. Or, hey, the pastor talked about this. Can you help me in thinking about next steps? Man, we'd love, we'd love to help you in that. And for all of us, Lord, Father, we pray that you would just kind of increase that passion in us for people who are far from the Lord, those people that are in our lives right now, those people that are going to come into our lives. We want to live boldly and compassionately on fire for you uh, to make disciples who can make disciples. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.